0: Welcome to the Art of Losing podcast. I'm your host, Julianne mansky radelson I cannot imagine a better way to kick off the show than to introduce you to my first guest, Laurel Braidman. Her stunningly beautiful memoir, What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss to Love, is one of my favorite books, and I'm still pinching myself that she agreed to speak with me about it. Laurel is a writer, teacher, and secular clinical chaplain in training, She's the Director of Writing and Storytelling at the Stanford School of Medicine's Medical Humanities and the Arts program, and the founder of Writing Medicine, a global community of writing healthcare professionals. As you'll hear in this conversation, Laurel is incredibly perceptive, warm, funny, and just absolutely delightful. So many points that she makes about the experience of loss in this conversation have stuck with me, and I know you're gonna love her as much as I do. So with no further ado, this is The Art of Losing, with Laurel Braithman. I want to welcome Laurel to the show. I am so thrilled to be able to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. As I
0: mentioned when I reached out, I am such a fan of your book. And because I'm lucky enough to have time with you, I get to ask you about all the things that really hit home for me when I was reading it. It felt really personally important to me, but the themes of the book could not be more universal. So I know this conversation will touch everyone who's able to listen to it.
1: That's so incredibly kind, thank you so Mm -hmm. much.
0: So I wanted to start out with one non-grief thing that we have in common, and this is a fun one. We both lived in a very magical place in the houseboat community in Sausalito.
1: That's incredible, it is a
0: magical place. Yes, I lived there for a year. And in the course of my 20s and 30s, I moved around a lot. I lived a lot of different kinds of lives. I had this feeling that I wanted to kind of try to do all of the things. And I got the sense in the book that you kind of tried to do that too. And you say it beautifully when you say, you know, when you were dating in this time and living all of these places, you were trying on potential selves as if you were trying on clothing. When you look back, why do you think that was your approach?
1: Oh, I mean, in the context of dating, I was definitely using dating in that time to try on alternative lives. And I write about that in, in the book too. It's kind of like trying on clothes at a sample sale, going to a dim sum brunch, ordering, you know, the newer to me, the better, but really, you know, it felt like dipping under the water in someone else's life and taking a look around. And I think, i'm a curious person i've always wondered what's out there beyond the next turn um and so much of my 20s and 30s i'm i'm also like a stove toucher right like some of us can be told the stove is hot and we don't (laughs) need to touch it to check and the rest of us will touch it just to make sure that the person isn't lying to us right (laughs) I think, you know, for me, my 20s and 30s were just like one big stove touching experience, you know, Um, and (laughs) living on the houseboats and was part of that. But, you know, I also tried many different jobs and I tried being with many different kinds of people and it was uh, peripatetic and exhausting and fun and (laughs) terrible all at the same time. Exactly. When I
0: look back at all that moving around, for me, it was Not wanting to attach too much to one thing, because what if I lose it? And I heard some of those themes when you were talking about it as well.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I can't believe we weren't friends on the houseboats, as we should have (laughs) been. We could have not gotten close to anything together. I know. Another thing we have
0: in common that is not nearly as fun is that in the lead up to our weddings, we both lost our moms. So my mom was with us the year leading up to getting engaged. And then 10 days after my now husband and I got engaged, she died. And then three months later, we got married. So it was very much all of these things happening at the same time. And i really related to you having those kind of overlapping timelines too. So one piece I wanted to ask you about was, you know, it was really interesting because for many of my friends and family, the wedding was the first time they were seeing me since the death. And everyone was really excited to focus on this happy thing. And of course they were. Like, you lost your mom, but at least you have this guy now. And that's what people want to do is focus on the good. But in the book, you talk about how, you know, we don't trade one thing for another. It's not a math equation. You say, you know, you could have a dad and a partner. And I thought, yeah, you know, I could have the mom and the husband, and that would be even better. So I'd love to hear about your experience of having those things happen so close
1: together. First of all, I didn't know we were in this weird club together and I, I just, I wonder how many of us there are like, what a weirdly specific life experience to have had. I think for a lot of my life, I spent it kind of trying to be, will myself into being that wedding guest, like, oh, that's so sad. You lost your mom, but yeah, look, cool. You're getting married. Like look at this nice guy who likes you, you know? And I think I, I spent a lot of my life being like, okay, that's too bad. What happened? But look over here. Look at this shiny, nice thing. You shouldn't be sad. You are very blessed. You are very privileged. You should be very grateful. And do not get me wrong. Those things are true. Yeah. But also, you know, like yes, you can be about to get married. And you can also be deeply, desperately, wretchedly sad that you just buried your mother you know, and it doesn't mean you're ungrateful for the chance at love. Um, you know, I, I think what I hope is that this stage of my life is a little bit about allowing myself to be both and not being so shrill and shaming myself when I, you know, spend a minute or two not being grateful.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's hard in our culture not to go to that first one. It's really hard not to say like, Let's look at this bright, shiny, really good thing, which totally ignores the reality of the situation. You know, even though I say that and I know that, I'm sure we've both done
1: it. Exactly. It can all be true at the exact same time. Mm
0: -hmm. You can feel
1: resentful and sad that other people might get both. And also, you can be psyched to be getting married. You can be psyched to have found this person. You know, I think it's, it's okay. Um, and it, it'd be better for all of us if we got to practice conflicting feelings <laughs> or even like moral tendencies more often, you know, mm-hmm. cause I think when we pretend not to be jealous of the person, right. Whose mom is sitting in the front row at their ceremony, that it's also a bit of a lie. So I think it's okay. Like I, like, I hate cute old people. Like I will be <laughs> the first person to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. I hate them. The cuter, yep. the the cuter, the more I hate them. Like I just <laughs> the cuter the more of the burn. of yeah. Yeah. like an old couple in a grocery store shopping and like holding hands. Like I makes me murderous, murderous, murderous. And that that's okay. I'm not actually gonna do it. Yeah, it's tough for me too
0: you know, it reminds me of this essay I wrote that I haven't published. And it was about how sometimes it feels like I'm in the consolation league of life, right? Like there was this championship league and it would have looked like the mom and the husband. And then there's this consolation league where it's like, it's not bad. It's actually really great. And we still might win the consolation championship. (laughs) But the reason I didn't publish it is that every time I go back to it, I feel differently about it. Like sometimes when I read it, I'm like, yes, that feels right. Right. And other times I think, no, you know life's really good. That isn't what it feels like at all. And you know that's one of the hard things about writing and putting how you feel about something in the moment on paper. I heard you interviewed by Lisa Kiefer on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Love her, love her show. And I had to pause the interview because something you said touched me so deeply. You were talking about the part of life that is still really hard and how it can still kind of take your breath away. And there's this piece of what might have been that still kind of hurts too much. That's one of the things I was trying to capture in that essay of just, you know, it's really hard to let go of that piece, that sun that's just too bright to look at.
1: A thousand times, yes. (laughs) Yes. a thousand times yes like i'm okay totally with you like i love the consolation league like we all get participation trophies right we're all champions in this league like i i really (laughs) want to read this essay of yours it's such a brilliant metaphor i mean the truth is is that even the people that we think are in the big leagues i don't i don't know taylor swift or something like they have their own suffering right i know not of it but i'm sure they have it and they feel like they're in the consolation league for some Thing like I don't think anyone feels like they've wanted everything at, or they just haven't lived long enough you know but so I actually think we're all here uh in the Constellation League and I, I, yeah it's it's the thinking about like oh what if, it's the what if that yeah. always just I won't even let myself go yeah. there sometimes like like if I if I picture what what could have been exactly as you said then i then i'm undone but if i concentrate on the present moment of like hey the sun's out it's not that bad you know um things things are okay i just had a really good pizza you know like (laughs) then it's all right (laughs) it's all right like it is it's it's the thinking about the good stuff that could have been that slays me yes, that's going to stay with me
0: because you're right. You know, everyone has their own version
1: of that. They do. They do. And you know, does that mean we need to have empathy for them? No, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I mean, not, not necessarily like some people's lives are much harder, right? Like I don't, I, I think we all experience our own suffering much the same, but I would never say that I have suffered less than, than somebody else, you know, I think, or suffered more. Um, certainly there are scales of challenge and difficulty in this life and I would never want to say that you know all of our difficulties are equal but I do definitely think we've all been disappointed by life um there is for all of us there is something we we wished and the world did not rise up to meet it um or answer our hopes and dreams and prayers in the way that we want like there's just no way um, and I, and I've had enough, like tiny bit of success in the non-Consolation League that I know that yeah, that is its, its own terrible thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you hit the bestseller list and then you're like, okay, great. But now I want to be here for two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why did I only get a week? Why did I, you know, <laughs> sometimes when you get the nice thing, all you want is more of the nice thing. And I, yeah. it, right. And that yeah. becomes its own weird struggle. Um, there's there's disappointment
0: in all of it there's there's expectations that aren't going to be met in in any version
1: yeah yeah I really do think like I have been I've made more than I need financially for example and I have made much less than I need to get through the month at various times in my life. Mm-hmm. And the only big difference in my happiness and satisfaction, work, life, uh, food, you know, rent, etc., is like when I can make like just a basic enough money, amount of money to cover my worries, <laughs> you know, like if yeah. the car breaks down and the carburetor goes or whatever, like I have enough to fix it without needing to not eat cheese or something. I can make my rent payment, et cetera, and I feel much the same as I do when I've made four times that. And I think the same is true for me for my emotional needs, weirdly, and and professional success. There's only a few moments of truly wonderful things that have kind of punctured the veil and made me feel really different. And even then, they don't last for that long. I feel like this is what all the meditators and like the smart Buddhists tell us to pay attention to, which I have not been able to, (laughs) but (laughs) when I look back at my life, right. Like I look at my general satisfaction and happiness and joy, the only things that have thrown me sideways have been loss, and the good stuff all kind of feels the same. You know, to varying degrees. So I just try to remember that when I start to like poison myself with comparing myself to other people who I think have gotten it better, even if they are cute old people in the, in the grocery store. (laughs) Yes, that
0: is very helpful and interesting to think about the good things feeling the same and somehow the losses having different texture to them. There's a part of your book. I love when a child brings up a past loss that's unrelated to the loss at hand And I remember at first it throws you a little, like, that's not what we're talking about right now. But then you realize he was right. And you write, every loss is all the losses. All at once, they're never separate. Or at least that's how it feels. I totally agree with that. Because the way I experience all losses now is different. Like last month, you know, I lost something really valuable. And it was financially valuable and, and really emotionally valuable. And I thought about you because in the book, You know, you describe losing material possessions too. I remember when I started to process the fact that the thing I lost was actually gone, one of the things I said to my husband was that, you know, I just didn't realize it was the last time I was going to see it. I just didn't know. And don't get me wrong, like I'm not saying material losses are like people, but I really wanted to ask you as someone who has experienced so many different types of losses, what can you say about the experience of losing material things?
1: Well, first of all, I will say, I think losing material things can be like losing people. Mm-hmm. I really do because mm-hmm. like people, they are receptacles of memories and love. Yeah. And sometimes when you lose a person, you lose the memories attached to that person. You lose the information that they kept and held for you. You lose yeah. the ability to ask them questions right? Like when you lose an object of emotional value, it, you are sometimes losing the memories associated with that object. I think about that all the time. Because every once in a while, I'll be going through a box and I see something and I haven't seen that thing in a while. And immediately when I pick up, you know, whatever this pencil is or cup or whatever, I am immediately transported into a memory that must have been in me, but I had no access to before without seeing that thing. So when we lose objects, I do think we often lose the histories attached to them. And you know, this intrinsically. So I think when you lose something with which you have an emotional relationship, you know, and you are grieving all of the future times when you mm-hmm. won't pick up that thing or wear that thing and think about what you would, if you'd had it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about that a lot because uh, as you mentioned, I now have almost no objects from my past and um, I don't the scale at which I have lost access, you know, and, and also because I am a child of the before times when we had no internet, when we had no digital images, um, I no longer. And because I've lost both my parents, I, I, there are giant swaths of my own history that I don't have access to, that I can't tell you about, that I can't fact check, and it makes me really sad. It does, yeah. you know. It, it's also, and I, it, people this is somewhat of a spoiler, I suppose, for your your listenership. Um, But it was a wildfire. And, you know, one thing that people said to us after the wildfire was, you know, oh, well, now you get to buy new things, you know, (laughs) which is like, often what people try to do after a death, right? They they immediately silver lining you, you know, which, Immediately silver lining you. Um, or they like can't help oh, themselves. They cannot help themselves, cannot help themselves. And right, and we can see people doing it, and we know why. And they it's coming from such a good place, but it's also just like, can't you just be in here and be uncomfortable with me for just a minute? Like that's actually less lonely than if you try to make me see the silver lining. Just sit in here with me, knowing that you have no idea what to say, and just tell me that. Um, but yeah, that that's how I feel about objects like I wish I hadn't had to buy any that I don't want a new thing I wanted the old things. Yeah. And yeah. I think, particularly those of us who are interested in loss or grief or have been marked by it in any way. Um, And I know this is true with children, you get especially more attached to the things that someone gave you or that you associate with someone else. And so it is a double loss, like, when you lose that thing that was extra special, meaningful to you, because you know, it's irreplaceable, like, I think those of us who have been marked by loss have an even stronger connection to stuff. Um, in many ways and not all stuff but definitely some stuff because it's a physical reminder a that you're still here you're like oh I am touching this thing I feel my itchy sweater I am alive (laughs) you know and also like when I touch something that someone I love touched who is no longer here I I I feel that in my very soul. And so when we lose those things, I do, is it the same as a death? No, you know, but it is a loss that that activates that same thing inside of me. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, and things are things for sure, you know, but also like things can be meaningful. It's okay. Yeah. And I mean,
0: attachment is real and we get attached to things like we get attached to people and I like what you said about the fact that there's meaning attached to the objects. You know, that's important.
1: It is. I'll, I'll tell you what's good medicine for this is gardening. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and I hate to be that person. It's so cliche to like tell someone to go dig a hole. But even if you have like a tiny five inch pot that you can put in an herb in. This is something I learned from my mom. I didn't learn it while she was alive. She would tell me this stuff all the time and I really just couldn't figure it out. But now that I am in charge of a lot of this, I understand in a new way. Built in to farming, into gardening is death. Just like it is with us. But like when you are taking care of even like a potted plant, right? And particularly if it's like a seasonal thing, like a basil or something. You know, it's supposed to die. It's supposed to die. You get attached to it, you eat it, you thrive on it, whatever. And then it dies. And then you start over. And I feel like I can't even do dogs again yet. Like dogs are too hard. Like I love dogs too much. But you know what I can do is like kill a plant when it's time to come and start Yes. You know yes. like you rip out the old dead stuff and you put in the new stuff and i that is one place like it has done more for i am a big proponent in therapy and every all the healing modalities but yeah. i will tell you that like and sometimes stuff dies that you don't want to right now just outside the door here we have this olive tree that my mom and stepdad planted and for i god knows why This is a 15 year old tree. It's suddenly dying. It started over the summer. I have no idea what's going on. It's gotten not too much water. It's gotten enough water. There's no reason for this tree to be dying and it's dying. And I just have to watch it die. I just have to watch it die. Every day it's a little more dead. This is a big tree and i it's right wow. in front of the house. I have <laughs> no control. Could I call out a tree expert and get them to inject? Some? I mean, maybe, but like, we're not all of growers. This was like a kind of a silly tree. Like I just have to sit here and watch it say it's slow goodbye to life, you know, and then it will die and I will try to figure out what happened and I will plant something else there. And, and I just, that to me is like the best medicine when I feel despondent, you know, that like, I don't have enough things that have meaning in my life that I can touch that are older than, you know, seven years old. Right.
0: It's a way to grapple with the circle of life in a way that our culture just won't and doesn't. One thing I found really fascinating when working with clients is that often when we dig down, what is there, regardless of the reason they came to therapy, is death anxiety, right? It's the fact that we have to live with the knowledge that we're going to die. There's nothing we can do about it. And people deal with that all different ways. In the book, you share that you used to name all of the things that could go wrong, just list them out. And you couldn't forget anything because if you did, that thing might happen, You know, that was a way of managing death anxiety (laughs) and gardening feels like, you know, maybe a less stressful way of facing the fact that we're going to die and there's not much we can do about it.
1: totally okay but can i ask you a question okay so and also that list i was doing when i was a kid i don't still do that list although maybe i should try it (laughs) Uh, um but i definitely was a child listing all the things that i thought (laughs) you know and it like the magical thinking of like if i just say it it won't come true you know but tell me i i'm gonna use this as a free therapeutic session like when people come to you that that know that know the truth right which is that you can be yanked away and out of the film of your life for no reason at all. What do you tell them? Like, do you just help them come up with their own coping mechanisms? Or do you have words of comfort that you tell people when they come to you and they're really suffering with death anxiety in like a straightforward way they're able to talk about? I
0: don't have the magic words. And, you know, I could tell you what's helpful for me when it comes to having to reconcile the really hard things about life. You know, if I'm being honest, I used to think that ignorance might be the answer. (laughs) Not really. But when I was pregnant with my first son, my husband and I joked about wanting him to be a happy dummy. And what we meant by this is that we wanted him to be shielded from how bad the world is so he could walk through the world happy and carefree. For the record, we did not get this. We got a very smart, deeply feeling child. But what I've come to believe is true is that embracing sadness and accepting that suffering is part of life is actually the path to accessing more joy. So in therapy, my goal is to work to get people more psychologically flexible so they can sit with all of the things, the hard things and the good things. And I actually think a lot of treatments, even in therapy, are really designed to distract our brains and really focus just on the good instead of integrating all of it. So as a therapist, Um, I do two things. You know, one is to teach skills to be able to sit with whatever is there. And then, you know, I validate that experience. But then the other is really, you know, connecting people to their values so that they can get grounded in what is going to make their time here good. Because if we spend all of our time worrying, if that's all we do, well, we could argue, you know, that's not a good life either.
1: You're such a good therapist. What happens though? Like, okay, so I feel like, I am aware a lot of the time about what we're talking about, right? Like I'm standing in front of the dead olive tree and I'm like, I feel my mortality and also it is beautiful, right? Or like, I'm going to sit with my fear of death or I've gone in for my annual mammogram and I'm waiting for results and I just know they're going to call me and tell me I'm dying, right? Like I can see (laughs) myself being in the uncomfortable, scared of death place with varying degrees of awareness. I also spend probably most of my day chasing cat toys away from that feeling, you know, like, like I am, I don't need someone to be like, look at that shiny thing because I am already doing it right like I, I am both people all the time all the time. Like, do you think like if we meditate, if we have other kind of practices where we check in with ourselves, like how do you end up spending more time in the mortality awareness place where you, if not are at peace or at least a little bit more aware of life while it's happening rather than like, I don't know, chasing new shoes or... Uh, watching something to deaden your fears of death? I, I don't know. Or, or do you think it's okay? Like, I don't I just spent a lot of time wondering, like, where, I, where am I in the ratio? Yes. Well, first of all,
0: I would guess that on the continuum, you're much more on the side of death is actually there than on the distraction side. And, you know, my first reaction to your question was that I don't think the other stuff is all that bad, I think it would be bad if it was 100% of your time. But when I'm working with grievers and they say, you know, I spent the first three months after my mom died watching crappy Bravo TV, I'm like, good for you, good for you. That sounds like it was what your brain needed to do as it worked to kind of understand slowly this new reality of your life. We so often judge grievers and how much we think they're actually dealing with the loss or not dealing with it, and that's really not for anyone to say. And that said, like, I I don't know where I am on the ratio. I'm sure more meditation would help me too. But I also don't think it does anyone any good to think about it all day or have it be front and center in every experience. So, you know, I'm right there with you. I'm not sure I have the balance just right. And I'm also not exactly sure what that right equation looks like.
1: Well, that, that feels good. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I... Uh, when I was interviewing people for the book and I, Janet DeChristophero runs the teen program at the Dougie center in Portland. I don't know if you talked to her. her. She She is such an excellent interviewer. Spectacular. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to her, she was telling me, I was like, well, how do you do this? You know, like you get all of these grieving young people stories and then what do you do? How do you go home? Like, how do you hold all these stories and live with this? And she was like, well, I'm really into talking animal movies. (laughs) so much like the disney talking animals are like the live action talking about you know because you know how they're gonna end they're all gonna end in a nice way like they're so reliable you know you're gonna feel a certain way afterwards i just loved that and she too was like you know distraction is really like underrated um i think we got sold this bill of goods it was like oh that's avoidant Mm-hmm. Um, and that somehow being an avoidant with something hard is going on in your life is a negative. I don't think that's true yeah. at all. You know, like you, I think like, oh my God, many of us, I mean, frankly, for me, I had to be avoided for like 17 years, yes. uh, you know, a long ass time before yes. I had the emotional bandwidth and the wisdom and the courage, you know, to face what I needed to face. And for some people that's 40 years. Yeah. For some people that's four days. You know, I think we're all different. I I truly blame no one for like needing to go watch reality TV for a decade. Me
0: neither. Watch those Hallmark movies. You don't even need to pay attention. You know, I think I'm seven and nine years out, something like that from my parents dying. And, you know, I hope there's going to be still a lot more. I don't even know yet in terms of how I grieve. I completely agree with you, you know, that when I work with clients, I just look at their coping mechanisms that are making their lives worse, right? Like if someone's suddenly drinking a lot, I'm like, okay, you know, maybe we look at that. But if someone's watching a bunch of Hallmark movies, you know, I'm not that concerned. Sometimes we just need a story that we know how it's going to end. We need that because our lives are very, very different from that. I'm okay with the talking animal movies to kind of escape for a bit. I think that's great. Okay, I do not want to keep you too much longer, but I did want to end with reading a passage of your book back to you. It's when you're flashing back to a trip with your family to New Zealand and you're filing onto a sightseeing bus and it's just begun to rain. And this is an exchange between your mom and the bus driver. Too bad about the weather, she said, looking up at the low gray ceiling, the man grinned. It's actually quite nice out, ma'am. It's just that sometimes clouds get between us and the sun. And then you write, remembering the sun is shining on the other side of the cloud is a lot like remembering that you're going to die, but haven't yet. And now, sitting in this cabin so suddenly flooded with light, I leaned back against my seat and thought about it again. Maybe once in a while, I could just
1: enjoy the warmth. (gasps) It's so beautiful, Laurel. Oh, thank you so much. I, I think about that now almost every time. I get on a plane ever since I've heard that lovely Kiwi bus driver say that, you know, because it's so true, right? Like you, yeah. I just flew out of Seattle. It was like, you know, you get, you get to the airport, it's wet. Your shoes are wet. You get on the plate. You're watching takeoff. The rain is going sideways on the windows and then one minute later, it's just like, what, you know, the cabin is full of light. It's bright, bright, bright. You're like, wait, wait, this was going on. Like while I was down there, you know, it's so profound. It's so profound, that feeling. If only we could, we could remember it, but you know, it's also exhausting. You don't want to live on the other side of the clouds. Like it's too hard. I just think it's like a good day when I've remembered it's there once or twice, you know, I don't want to live there, but I want to remember it.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, when we can just feel the warmth in the moment, like that's the good stuff. But I'd be lying if I said there aren't a lot of days that I'm the one saying too bad about the weather. (laughs) But one of the beautiful things you communicate in the book is your parents' belief that there's more beauty in the world than horror. And my last question is that, you know, after all that you've been through, is that something you still believe?
1: oh my god absolutely this conversation is evidence and i think even as we're talking here war is happening in the middle east and you know so many other places in the world and i even even then even then i believe this you know i just think it's so hard when you're either in a personal tragedy or you're in the midst of a larger humanitarian crisis It's so easy for us only to pay attention to the horror, but everywhere you look, there are stories of people helping each other. There are people coming together worlds away to help others, to think about others. Um, It's just that those things don't often make the news cycle um, as much. And so it is a practice to kind of like supplement the bad news, which is almost all the news with your own good news that you source from, (laughs) from yourself and others and that you make. You know, but I, uh, but I, I do believe that, um, I, I can't not believe that, you know, I'm, I, even though I, first to tell you the terrible things happen for no reason at all, mostly to people who don't deserve them, you know, but I also, I, I do believe there's, there's more beauty than horror always.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And your actions show that too. During COVID, you started up a writing group for people working in healthcare, and I know that's something you've continued to be passionate about and lead. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with you, what other ways can they find you and connect?
1: Oh, thanks for asking that. Yeah, absolutely. If you work in healthcare or you love someone who does, and that's anyone from social workers, uh, therapists, um, medical and nursing students, PAs. Really, we wel- we welcome everyone who works in healthcare or loves someone who does. And we write together first and third Saturday of every month. And people can find me at writingmedicine.org for that. Um, it's either free or pay what you can. It's very affordable and a wonderful community. And they can also write with me. Um, I've I've started doing the work that I have done primarily with healthcare professionals with the rest of us too and and this coming uh winter spring um I'm going to be uh, doing a short series of writing about loss um and the losses oh, that goodness. have made you so if that Mind would be fun <laughs> yeah come with me uh, that would I be really <laughs> really fun so yeah people can find out more about that at uh, laurelbrayman.com
0: Well, Anyone who is able to work with you will be very lucky. And this book and your writing has been so meaningful to me. And I know I'm one of so many. I'm grateful for this time with you. Thank you for being you and for all that you do in the world.
1: Thank you so much. You are an incredible interviewer and this has been a gift of an afternoon. What did
0: I tell you? Laurel is incredible and I highly recommend connecting with her on Instagram subscribing to her substack, Dark Horse, and getting a copy of her gorgeous memoir. In addition to writing medicine, she's leading several writing workshops this month, so make sure to sign up. I will include links for those in the show notes. And for those of you listening to this on Grief Is My Side Hustle, please also subscribe to the Art of Luthing podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Big thanks to Jakob Ballerson for this amazing theme music and to all of you for listening.